Welcome to the IIF Global Regulatory Update Podcast. I'm Martin Boer, Director of Regulatory Affairs at the Institute of International Finance. For this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Jay Raj Put on Vidu, Global Head of Operational Resilience, Third Party Tech Risk, and Crisis Management at BMP Paribas, and a strong IF collaborator in the areas of both operational resilience and cybersecurity. It's a real pleasure to be speaking today. In this podcast, we're going to focus on enhancing operational resilience in the time of COVID-19. How has the pandemic impacted large financial firms like BMP Paribas? And what are organizations doing to remain resilient while continuing to serve their clients and markets? Jairaj, it's great to be talking with you today. I know you recently moved from Singapore to London. Where are you working today and how are things there with COVID-19? Thank you, Martin, for inviting me to the podcast. It's my pleasure to have an opportunity to share my thoughts. I incidentally left Singapore right at the cusp of COVID-19 becoming a global crisis. I'm now based in London, but as most of our colleagues, we have been mostly working remotely. But yes, I was one of the few who happened to experience the shock in two different countries. And past experience with SARS, while it helped, really helped Asia in managing their response much more effectively than the rest of the world at the initial stages. However, the magnitude in which the situation evolved was not something that we had planned for. COVID-19 is a health and increasingly an economic crisis, and it's radically changed the way that we're all working. Can we go back to February and March earlier this year? And can you tell me how your team and how your colleagues were first impacted when the virus began spreading across borders? The crisis is indeed a black swan event. While we all had the pandemic response plan in our toolkits and scenario cards, we never imagined or even planned for such a global scale of the impact, which simultaneously affected the globe and may last for months and years. For us, as a global organization with operations in APAC, we started detecting the signals early on this year. The early warning gave us the head start to try and familiarize with the situation and to actually quickly recognize that we are potentially facing a global crisis. That helped us refine the leading practices, especially from regions like APAC, to others who have not experienced such a severe pandemic in the past. While that sharing of best practices and the early warning signals helped a lot, I believe everyone here in the industry were caught off guard by some of the challenges. For example, the remote working infrastructure capacity was never meant for such large-scale deployment at short notice in many organizations. And this forced organizations to prioritize critical staff access example, core trading hours or branch opening hours, etc., to accelerate the infrastructure upgrades and balance the capacity usage. Another key point was supply shock. That's a key concern, especially in locations where sudden lockdown decisions were implemented. Though these were brought back to normal pretty quickly, fortunately, the emphasis on the supply shock was a key thing. Mindset change in terms of the new normal, and it was very evident where certain business processes 
in the past may not have been performed remotely, now had to be performed remotely with an adapted and enhanced controls monitoring so that we don't compromise on the risk aspect. There's also a high level of anticipation and alert um, related to a potential coordinated or a targeted cyber attack to an operating environment. This was important because the attack surface was widened due to the remote working infrastructure that we all were under. There were concerns on phishing attacks also on remote workers and potential malware targeting remote access infrastructures. All these things combined with the unprecedented actions by governments across the world left little time for planning and preparations for organizations. A lot of organizations adapted, in my view, rapidly and quickly, but initial stages, there was not much time for deliberation. Yeah, and as you say, it was sudden, it was unprecedented, it had a huge impact across your organization like it did to all other organizations around the world. What were some of the immediate steps then that needed to be taken to protect you know, the health of your workers and clients, but also to ensure that you can continue to offer the necessary products and services to keep the clients and the markets going? Yeah, as you said, the initial days, everyone across the globe underestimated the potential scale of impact of the crisis. It was largely thought to be an issue affecting Asia, but then the rapid rise in infection changed the aspects of it and the spread of the virus clearly indicated that it's a global issue. And then organizations started to prioritize what's most important priority was our staff, our customers, and making sure we are safe and secure for our safety of people as well as customers. At the same time, ensuring our continuous delivery of important business services without much client or market impact. So this was very important. And we used what we call adapted business as usual mode, which is more than the traditional business continuity plan. Uh, we continue to provide as much service as we can within the constraints that we were living under. This included various strategies such as uh, split operations or remote work, cross-regional support where possible, respecting the social distancing measures and lockdown measures various countries forced. At some point, we had majority, more than 90% of our workforce working remotely. And that was a good coordination with the multiple crisis management calls hundreds of them potentially in various locations and businesses working together. What's most important thing to me was maintaining that macro level view of impact, but providing what we call the cockpit operation resilience dashboard that provides a transparent view across multiple facets of crisis, as well as the response and recovery procedures and strategies that we've adopted. It also includes enhanced controls put in place to mitigate some of the risks that potentially would come up because of the remote working arrangement. The new normal of working is the adapting business as usual, and that included also working for essential services for clients, and we also had combination of wholesale and retail businesses to make sure that we continue to keep the lights on for clients to be served. That's very interesting. And it also complements very well what I've heard from other firms, too, about, you know, more than 90 percent of their workforce working remotely and what all those implications are. 
So I very much appreciate your views on what happened in the first days. We're now in August, more than eight months into the pandemic, and many parts of the world, it's still growing, and we don't have any vaccine or drugs yet in sight to help. Um, so now that we're further along into the pandemic, Jairash, what are the more longer-term actions that now need to be taken? That's an interesting question and very relevant, Martin because the pandemic clearly demonstrated that we should accelerate our digital transformation in leveraging the capabilities that we already have. I would argue that COVID-19 actually accelerated digital transformation in many contexts, whether it is remote infrastructure or collaboration or new innovative solutions in the way of working, mostly digital. So definitely the digital transformation and taking that whether it is online service offering to a broader range of services or to retail or wholesale customers, or investing in more digital collaboration tools, or it is accelerating your cloud strategy, could also be the new way of working in terms of more staff working remotely versus working in the office. A lot of aspects of that can come in, and this is going to be more long-term thinking and the way we work and operate in the generations to come. Another thing we need to keep in mind is this pandemic is also a notable opportunity to further strengthen operational resilience practices for everyone in the industry. We should look at how we can enhance the business recovery processes. How do we absorb shock and what lessons have we learned in terms of monitoring of our outsourced services? Cybersecurity controls across enterprises in a remote working environment. How do we improve our customer security and cyber awareness of our clients? How do we look at building muscle memories in terms of exercising? And such scenarios like this pandemic has a tendency to be regular, but developing with multiple hikes or successive ones. So our traditional toolkit may not be enough. This is where we need to look at innovative way of operational resilience. I'm glad you brought up digital transformation and operational resilience because those are newer areas where really gains can still be made. Looking at those points and also cybersecurity, which you've mentioned several times, are there already lessons learned from this pandemic, which has been so different than other ones in the past? Are there lessons learned for you in terms of what financial firms should be thinking about in future pandemics? That's a good question again, Martin. And one thing we need to keep in mind is definitely strengthening operational resilience as a business imperative rather than a regulatory compliance. We need to look at this as more enabler than a tick-in-the-boss exercise. Going beyond that, I would suggest that one key thing is to prepare for a double shock. Think about a scenario where there could be extreme cyber attack or a technology outage during a pandemic when people are working from home or working remotely, it would be difficult to coordinate even further. Another aspect of it is this pandemic, while it stressed a lot of scenarios and imagination, fortunately, around the world, not many organizations had to face high level of absenteeism. That is an important aspect because most of the staff were available were to work remotely. If you push this scenario to an even further extreme. We could have faced with extreme level of absenteeism 
triggered by potential other events, and that would be something that we need to think through. Last one I would think in this context is one important thing to keep in mind is to not declare victory over a reasonably successful response to the crisis and forget that other shocks may emerge. And this is very important because in the pandemic, everybody around the world were affected almost equally. But in some of the other threat scenarios, we probably will be one or two organizations directly affected by that. And at that point, the expectation from the clients, market, and regulators will be very different. Thank you. Yes, it's really sobering to hear about the double shock of both having possible cyber or IT widespread outage at the same time as the human and economic costs of the pandemic. I can see really, you know, what the concerns are there. On the cybersecurity side, there's been different views in terms of whether there's been more attacks during the last couple months or whether the attacks are really under a new COVID-19 wrapper where the adversaries are trying to take advantage of the fact that so many employees and also clients are now working remotely. How have you seen the general threat landscape over the last few months? You mentioned that the attack vector has greatly expanded. But have you seen that the adversaries have been more busy or in different ways than in the past? Martin, uh, same actors, same tools, but new themed content. While adversaries were trying to adjust to their new normal working, it's a funny thing that all the adversaries are all human beings and they were also affected by pandemic and lockdown. So there is a chance that the attack methodologies differed, definitely with more than 90% of the workforce working from home, the attack surface extended, and then the resulting brute force attacks on remote desktops. We have seen that significantly increased on the internet. You see various reports seeing even 41% of the increase in number of remote desktop endpoints available on the internet, I think, by the end of March. We also see COVID-themed social engineering and phishing campaign trying to use the emergency and criticality of the situation to decept the recipients and to make them a victim of financial fraud. One of those example behaviors could be when you get a phishing link, in general, when people are in the office and working, they could be six to 12 hours before you click on a link, sent to your personal email, average. But the click time that or the time to click in a COVID scenario when you're working from home, your access to personal email, it's more likely that you click quicker, which means the organization got less time to take down those phishing sites. And that results in real life account takeovers and related cyber fraud events. That's very interesting and very concerning that these actors would pose behind COVID-19 phishing and spoofing mails. You talked quite a bit about how the financial institutions have been impacted. What about the third-party vendors and the cloud computing firms? How do you see the third-party and supply chain relationship changing due to the COVID-19 experience? Very critical point for us. And we see the supply chain shock and the third-party resilience is and will be one of the clear priorities. If you look at whether it is on the retail side, whether it's the ATMs or contact centers or cash management or offshore entities, teams, it has been a lesson learned for all of us. 
the objective is to make sure that we continue to get service even in the constrained environment from the third parties. I think that mapping of third party for clear dependency is important. And at the same time, diversification of supply chain channel to avoid or reduce the concentration risk of critical services is very important as we think about any kind of outsourcing. It's especially important for your critical crown jewels where you have critical business services supported by technologies third party or an operations third party or even a counterparty. I think it's important to diversify the supply chain channels and also make sure that these organizations continue to stay resilient for the benefit of all the industry. There's also one aspect of industry-wide risk potentially coming from these big third parties. Yeah, no, those are great points. I wanted to transition a bit to the policy side where you've been very active at the IF and also in other forums. We've seen that the International Monetary Fund and the Financial Stability Board have come out recently with toolkits of effective practices that industry are using, which will probably also help especially firms that are not as mature yet in their experience on these topics. Do you think that these tools are useful? And to what extent do you feel that jurisdictions that you operate in are coordinating and cooperating around these sorts of practices? Yeah, thank you, Martin. And thank you for your leadership in these industry-wide efforts, which I find it really useful for the betterment of resilience overall in the financial sector. These toolkits are definitely useful to guide and structure the approaches that the firms Take. So it definitely serves as a catalyst for more harmonization. I think the size of the organization should not influence the broad lines of the guidance. So yes, toolkits are still pertinent to all size of the firms. The difference may be rising from the depth or implementation or the cost involvement allocated to each and every aspect. So every firm definitely should take these toolkits and use a risk-based approach in applying to them to form an opinion and use it. This is what we based on which the resilient framework, or whether it is cyber, business, or third party can be developed. Industry is coming together globally in this with the help of IAF and GFMA, et cetera. I think that's good. However, we still see some gap amongst the regulatory approaches and requirements. I think the cost of compliance needs to be kept in mind as we do that. And that probably could be helped by cross-jurisdictional coordination from regulators to harmonize these requirements. Yes, you're right. We are seeing different approaches being developed around operational resilience, just like we had with cybersecurity. You can look at what's happening in the UK, the US, the EU, Singapore, the Basel Committee, and it's clear that their concepts and versions of operational resilience don't always connect. And so I really take your points about the importance of coordination and cooperation. Do you feel that this new concept of operational resilience is helping industry in taking a more holistic enterprise-wide view? Absolutely. These approaches helped standardize the operational resilience practices among the industry, no doubt at all. I think these are very important steps in protecting the market integrity, the client and the organization resilience, safety and soundness of the firm. So I think these are definitely helping the industry in also identifying what's the most important one and prioritizing the strategic investments to make 
those most important functions resilient so that we have less systemic impact in the local economy or in the wider marketplace. So definitely helps bringing the three pillars together. I think the key for us is the enterprise-wide view of front-to-back view of resilience. I think that's what is going to be emerged. Great. You talked earlier about the lessons learned on the business continuity and the cybersecurity side. Let me ask you now in closing, as regulators and also global standard setting bodies are thinking about how to regulate and also how to supervise operational resilience, are there lessons you think we can already share with them in terms of how you have stayed resilient through the pandemic? Yes. The industry demonstrated a high level of agility in adapting to the crisis and implementing mitigation controls, which calls for the same from regulators. While experiencing a global crisis, the industry needs an alignment and rationalization of these requirements to avoid being overwhelmed with complexity and suffering from possibly contradictory asks. Industries adopting new normal way of working delivers its financial services I think that's a good connect for the regulators. Consider that at this stage to see how the regulatory requirements can be harmonized in the context of lessons learned from COVID. Thank you very much, J-Raw, for sharing your insights. I very much enjoyed our digital virtual conversation, but I really look forward to seeing you again when things normalize. Thank you, Martin. It's been a really pleasure always working with you. And once again, thank you for having me here. And we thank everyone for listening to this podcast and hope that you all stay safe and healthy. Please consider subscribing to the IIF Global Regulatory Update wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.